This is a beautiful world. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is a beautiful world. And today, we celebrate Women's History Month by looking at rebels, renegades, and wild women in the past, present, and future. Just like the quote says, well-behaved women seldom make history. And today, we look at women throughout history who have broken the rules and stepped outside conventional social norms to make their dreams come true. We begin in the past, in the year 1820, when a very special woman was born, Miss Susan B. Anthony, the women's rights activist who played a critical role in getting women the right to vote. Well, at the turn of the century, the two most famous women in the world were Queen Victoria of England and Susan B. Anthony from Rochester, New York. That's Deborah L. Hughes, president of the National Susan B. Anthony Museum and House in Rochester, New York. Someone once said, you know, if you were to look at Martin Luther King Jr., Jesus, Susan B. Anthony, and Gandhi, you would have four people who influenced revolutions without ever lifting a sword or a gun, all for causes for human justice. Susan B. Anthony was infamous for her revolutionary work with women's rights. She was known as a petticoat rebel, and in a time when women were considered property instead of people and not legally allowed to speak out publicly for their rights, she was a tireless and fearless agent of change. She had been advocating for social justice issues for her whole life, and she had spent her years traveling, crisscrossing back and forth across the country as we were adding territories and states were coming into the Union. If we look at 1820, the year Susan B. Anthony was born, in this country, slavery was legal, and women who were married actually didn't have any legal status. The law said the two become one and the one is the man. Actually, literally, that was true. So if you were Jane Doe, and you married Fred Smith, you became Mrs. Fred Smith because Jane Doe had no legal rights or powers. You were just uh, a subsidiary of Fred. Susan B. Anthony, however, had no intention of becoming a subsidiary of Fred. She was born to liberal Quaker parents, and she had ideas of her own. Quakers believe that every person has the inner light of the Creator within them and has a vocation for their life. So Quakers, from the very beginning, assumed that women have a role to play in the world. Susan B. Anthony's role was one she created herself. Everything about her was original, from what she thought, to what she said, to how she looked. Even though we don't have a single picture with her smiling, because they didn't take smiling pictures back then, many times she's described as having this uh, beautiful smile and this incredible, engaging personality. She was a force to be reckoned with. And when she arrived in town, uh, people would turn out to see the spectacle, to listen to her. She could speak for more than an hour, even longer. And even the reporters who totally disagreed with what she said over time had to acknowledge that her arguments were good, that her integrity was uh, amazing, and that, that she truly was someone dedicated to what she said she believed in. And what she believed in? was equal rights for women and for everyone. She played a pivotal role in the women's suffrage movement, but she also took up causes anywhere she saw social injustice. I think Susan B. Anthony had a very strong sense of vocation, a notion that there was something she was supposed to do in the world, and what she was supposed to do was something that would be 
for the betterment of all people. Anthony was a champion of temperance, abolition, African-American rights, and equal pay for equal work. Hughes says there were four words that summed up what Susan B. Anthony was fighting for. Liberty, justice, equality, and humanity. Those were the things she was fighting for. When she started first working for temperance, it was an issue of um, so much prevalent drunkenness and the ways that women and children were trapped in untenable, unfair situations in the 19th century. But soon she became the agent for the New York State, uh, working for the American Anti-Slavery Society, as a young single woman traveling to every single county in New York State to speak out against slavery at a time when women were still not supposed to be speaking in public to men. Uh, Here she was traveling, putting her life at risk. She actually had more death threats at the time that she was working against slavery than she did later in her work for women's rights. Death threats became routine for Susan B. Anthony, as did routine public humiliations. She had been accused of being a masculine woman. She'd been accused of anything you could do to discredit her. They used it. Um, She was too tall. She was too loud. She was too quiet. She was too too attractive. She was too unattractive. Uh, Whatever it was, um, whatever you could do to tear her down, they did that. She took those comments and turned them around for the positive. So she had a beautiful speech where she said she envisioned the new century when masculine women and feminine men would be able to exercise all of their gifts, where we would resolve our differences between nations, not with swords, but with diplomacy. Diplomacy, however, was not always Susan B.'s strong suit. She was a self-proclaimed radical and agitator. She got impatient with organizations that she thought weren't doing things the right way. At one point, the local YWCA was opening a new building here, and she was invited to be one of the speakers. And at the end, she commends them for doing this marvelous job of taking care of women, uh, teaching immigrant women English, helping with child care, providing supportive services for people who are getting into the workforce. But then she says, but you're really, you're treating the symptoms. You're not really addressing the inequalities of pay, the injustice for uh, women not having access to fair housing, to appropriate health care. She names all these things and says that that's what they should really be working at. They should really be changing the structures of society until everyone gets to participate equally in it. She was very much a radical voice in her time. On November 18, 1872, Susan B. Anthony was arrested for attempting to vote. Later, a judge handed her a verdict of guilty, which he'd written down before the trial, and fined her $100, which Anthony refused to pay. The judge, in turn, refused to imprison her, so Susan could not appeal the verdict. She saw the 19th Amendment get passed, and then she saw all of the ways that the women's right to vote continued to be suppressed through uh, literacy tests, through poll taxes. Um, and here we've gotten to an era just in my lifetime, how much has changed for women. That's the continuation of the work that Susan B. Anthony started. When we hear these stories and we see images of Susan B. Anthony and her strange turn-of-the-century dress, it's easy to think that all of this happened a long time ago. But it didn't. Our grandmothers and mothers remember a time when the rights that we enjoy today didn't exist. My mother died uh, three years ago, but she was born before women had the right to vote in this country. That's my mother. Uh, When I was a child, girls couldn't wear pants to school. Uh, I actually got sent home for doing that at one point in time. When I was in junior high, women couldn't get a credit card in their own name. Their husbands had to give them 
permission to get a credit card. This is my lifetime. Hughes says that she believes Susan B. Anthony would praise our accomplishments today, but she'd also urge us to push harder. In the United States, we women didn't have the right to serve on juries in all of our states until the 1970s. And when you talk about the Me Too movement, I was in the workforce in the 1980s before Anita Hill when a lot of sexual harassment was just expected. It, it was horrific, particularly if you uh, were a working class woman or a woman of color or a single parent for whom it was very hard to find a position where you could earn enough to sustain a family. And so your employer could take advantage of that vulnerability by threatening to fire you if you didn't comply or do whatever they expected you to do. And that's my lifetime. I, I saw and knew of horrific things where there were men taking advantage of women uh, because because they could. And Susan B. Anthony fought so that we could stand up today in the Me Too movement so that we can run for office. I mean, it's a, thank goodness there's now a whole generation of children who don't say a woman could run for president. By the 1890s, Anthony had overcome much of the abuse and sarcasm that plagued her early efforts, and she emerged in society as a national heroine. In 1900, at age 80, she retired from the presidency of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. But she never gave up her quest to achieve equality for all, a quest that Hughes believes will involve rethinking gender stereotypes at their core. The notion of a binary gender is ridiculous and is too binding for us. Um, I think that there are you know, genetic differences and chromosomal differences, but I don't think that the human spirit gets bound by those. And I think that a lot of what Susan B. Anthony said would also reinforce that idea that it's really about the human being. Uh, you know, her emphasis around, around liberty and around equality was really about giving everybody opportunity to be who they were uh, and not forcing people into particular roles. I think often our power structures benefit from having roles, and that's where we get the resistance. To me, we are like nature. Uh, we're, we're like snowflakes. We're like leaves on the trees. We're like trees in the forest. We're like grass in the lawn. We are all all unique, all different, and yet in some ways um, we breathe and have great things in common. Susan B. Anthony died on March 13, 1906, in Rochester, New York. She died from heart trouble combined with pneumonia, and despite achieving phenomenal success in her lifetime, she died 14 years before women were legally allowed to vote. Still, a quote attributed to her, failure is impossible, became the suffrage rallying cry that can still be heard today. Next up, we hear about present-day changemakers in women's rights, and that includes Miss Jane Goodall. I wanted to come as close to talking to animals as I could be like Dr. Doolittle. I wanted to move among them without fear, like Tarzan. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World. We're celebrating Women's History Month and moving on to present-day rebels and wild women. 
Jane Goodall was born on April 3, 1934, in London, England. And at the young age of 26, she followed her passion for animals and Africa to Gombe, Tanzania, where she began her landmark study of chimpanzees in the wild, immersing herself in their habitat as a neighbor rather than a distant observer. Her discovery in 1960 that chimpanzees make and use tools rocked the scientific world and redefined the relationship between humans and animals. Like most children before the age of TB and computer games, I love being outside, playing in the secret places in the garden, learning about nature. I spent many hours high above the ground at the top of my favorite tree. And I would read up there in my own leafy and private world. It was daydreaming about life in the forest with Tarzan that led to my determination to go to Africa, to live with animals and write books about them. In the new National Geographic documentary called Jane, Director Brett Morgan draws from over 100 hours of never-before-seen footage shot in Tanzania's Gombe National Park in the 1960s. The film reveals an intimate portrait of Jane Goodall, a young, untrained woman whose chimpanzee research challenged the male-dominated scientific consensus of our time and revolutionized our understanding of the natural world. In the film, Jane admits when she dreamt at night, she often dreamt she was a man. I was typically a man. I went on adventures, probably because at the time I wanted to do things which men did and women didn't. You know, going to Africa, living with animals. That's all I ever thought about. Goodall dreamt of going to Africa, but she didn't come from a wealthy family. She was a waitress and saved every penny she could to get there in 1957, where she met Dr. Louis Leakey, who would set her on her way to Gombe and the chimpanzees. She had no training at the time, no degree, but Louis didn't care about academic credentials. He was looking for someone with an open mind, a passion for knowledge, a love of animals, and monumental patience. He found all of that in Jane Goodall. My mission was to get close to the chimpanzees, to live among them, to be accepted. I wanted to come as close to talking to animals as I could, to be like Dr. Doolittle. I wanted to move among them without fear, like Tarzan. Goodall says that she felt she belonged to this forest world, that she was meant to be there. And she didn't know exactly how she was going to learn about the chimps, except for somehow she had to get close to them so they could get used to her. She had no idea about the dangers around her. Nobody warned her that chimps could sometimes be violent. You have to realize that back then, there were no people out in the field whose research I could read about, except this one man, and he saw chimps once or maybe twice in the three months of his study. And then much earlier on, there was this crazy man who sat in hides and hoped chimps would appear. Jane decided to do things her own way, with only her instincts to guide her. I had this probably crazy feeling. Nothing's going to hurt me. I'm meant to be here. 
Jane set up camp to study the chimps, and so began one of the most exciting periods of her life, a time of discovery. Her life fell into a rhythm. Day after day, in the sun and the wind and the rain, she climbed into the hills and stayed with the chimps from dawn until darkness fell. Sometimes she encountered small groups or a single chimp, but there were other times she couldn't find them at all. And many times, when she tried to get closer to them, they ran off as soon as they saw her. She was still an intruder, and a strange one at that. As I'm not a defeatist, it only made my determination to succeed stronger. I never had any thought of quitting. I should forever have lost all self-respect if I had given up. I became totally absorbed into this forest existence. I could give myself up to the sheer pleasure of being on my own in the rugged terrain that I was coming to know as well as I had known the Bournemouth cliffs as a child. She says it was an unparalleled time for her when aloneness was a way of life. And as she was getting used to the chimps, they were getting used to her, this strange white woman always at the outskirts of their camp. In those days, it was not thought at all safe for a young, single girl to go into the wilds of Africa. I had to choose a companion. It was my mother who volunteered. Mum set up a clinic. She handed out medicine to many of the local fishermen. Patients would walk for miles to get treatment I think the most important part about my mother was that she listened. She was always fair. She was never angry without a reason. She supported me and my love of animals. She never said, well, you're just a girl, you can't do that. Why don't you dream about something you can achieve, which is what everybody else told me. So it was my mother who really built up my self-esteem. With an inner determination and belief in her ability, Goodall persevered despite many setbacks. And while chimpanzees are running away from you, you can't really get down to the details of their behavior. And at the back of my mind, there was always the fear, if I don't find out something exciting, the money will run out. Because all my earlier observations uh, were either chimps close up running away or sitting on the peak or some other uh, spot and watching them through binoculars. And so, you know, from, from those early observations, it was very clear that, that I wasn't really learning anything much. Goodall had been in Gombe for five months when one morning she was tramping up and down three different valleys looking for chimps and finding none. One approached her. He seemed less fearful than the others. He had a distinctive white tuft of hair on his chin. And unlike the others, he didn't run from Jane. She named him David Greybeard, and he was to be the first chimp of many that she would come to know as well as she did her own family. After months of patient and tireless observation, I'd been rewarded. 
The chimps had accepted me. So began the most important work of Jane's life. Together, the chimpanzees and the birds and insects, the teeming life of the vibrant forest formed one whole, all part of the great mystery. And I was part of it too. All the time, I was getting closer to animals and nature. And as a result, closer to myself, and more in tune with the spiritual power that I felt all around. I thought, as I have so often since, what an amazing privilege it was to be utterly accepted thus by a wild, free animal. In order to keep her research going, Jane knew she had to secure more funding for her research station, so she returned home and began sharing her findings with the media. Truth is stranger than fiction, and fiction can be transformed into prophecy. Here we have a perfect example of that evolution. Well, this lovely English lady called Jane has likewise traded her comfortable home in England for the primitive life of the African wilderness among the African apes. And now I give myself the rewarding pleasure of presenting to you Miss Jane Goodall. David Greybeard is a chimpanzee who has put his complete trust in man. Surely it's up to us to see that Paul, at least blonde some and beautiful. of these She's never good living with the chimpanzees in the wilds of Africa. Africa. I was the geographic cover girl. And people said, well, my fame was due to my legs. Well, I mean, it was so stupid. It didn't bother me. It was really very useful because by this time I was needing to raise money myself. So I made use of it. Goodall raised money for her research station and accepted students to help collect more data. She also married Baron Hugo van Lawick, who was sent by National Geographic to film her in the field. Together, they had a baby who they nicknamed Grub. And Jane said she based her parenting skills not on her own mother or Dr. Spock, but on the chimps she watched, especially her favorite mother chimp named Flo. Of course, like all mothers, I wanted to give my son the best possible start in life. And I had to choose between various sources of advice. There was my own mother, there was Dr. Spock, and there was Flo. There is no doubt that my observations of the chimpanzees helped me to be a better mother. But I found also that the experience of being myself a mother helped me better understand chimpanzee maternal behavior. It was not until Grub came along, for example, that I began to understand the basic powerful instincts of mother love. How much more easily I could now understand the feelings of a chimpanzee mother who furiously waved her arms and barked out threats to any who approached her infant too closely. As Goodall raised her son while continuing her research with the chimps, she also had to come to terms with the darker side of her beloved primates and their sometimes brutal, warlike behavior. I thought they were like us, but nicer than us. I had no idea of the brutality that they can show took me a while to come to terms with that. She realized humans' warlike behavior had been inherited from our ancient primate ancestors. At the same time, 
Jane's husband Hugo had to start working remotely, and their marriage began to suffer. He wanted me to leave Gombe because there was no way he could stay and work. But I couldn't. It was my life, and he had his. They divorced, and Jane continued her research alone. During the trying time of my divorce, it was all very sad, especially for Grubb, for he, of course, loved us both. But I realized that my experience in the forest had given me perspective. In the forest, death is not hidden. It is all around you all the time, a part of the endless cycle of life. Chimpanzees are born, they grow older, they get sick, and they die. And always there are the young ones to carry on the life of the species. Goodall had gone to Gombe hoping to have a better understanding of chimpanzee behavior, that it might provide us with a better understanding of our own behavior, and it did, more than she could have ever hoped. Her research gave us a window into our past and helped pinpoint not only our similarities with animals, but also those ways in which we are most different. Admittedly, we're not the only beings with personalities, reasoning powers, altruism, and emotions, nor are we the only beings capable of mental as well as physical suffering. But our intellect has grown mightily in complexity since the first true men branched off from the ape-man stock some two million years ago. And this highly developed intellect means, surely, that we have a responsibility towards the other life forms of our planet, whose continued existence is threatened by the thoughtless behavior of our own human species. That sense of responsibility is what finally brought Jane back out of the forest. She might have stayed there forever in her handmade heaven with her beloved chimpanzees. But she knew that chimps across Africa were disappearing and she had to do something about it. My life at the time was perfect. I was spending time in the field. I was writing a book. I had students, so the research was secure. And I could be with my son. It was my life for the rest of my life. It was better than anything I dreamed of. But I knew that the chimpanzees across Africa were disappearing. So that's when I realized that I had to raise awareness about the plight of chimps in Africa. And the role that I must play is to make sure that the next generation are better stewards than we've been. And I needed to take that message to the world. And since that time, that was October 1986, I haven't been more than three weeks consecutively in any one place. Goodall has worked tirelessly, campaigning and raising awareness as well as funds to continue her research and protect wild spaces all around the world. In 1977, she established the Jane Goodall Institute to advance her work for generations to come. JGI continues the field research at Gombe and builds on Dr. Goodall's innovative approach to conservation, which recognizes the central role that people play in the well-being of animals and the environment. Today, Dr. Goodall travels the world, speaking about the threats facing chimpanzees, environmental crises, and her reasons for hope. 
In her books and speeches, she emphasizes the interconnectedness of all living things and the collective power of individual action. When I look back over my life, it seems I've been extraordinarily lucky. Although, as my mother Van always says, luck was only part of the story. She's always believed that success comes through determination and hard work, and that the fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. I certainly believe that's true. Yet though I have worked hard all my life, I must admit that the stars seem to have played their part too. That was Dr. Jane Goodall, one of the most luminous wild women of our century, speaking about her lifetime of conservation work. The documentary Jane debuts this March on National Geographic and Nat Geo Wild. You can visit abeautiful.world to learn more. Coming up next, we learn about rebel women committed to making changes in the future and beyond. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World from American Public Media. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World. We move on now to rebel women committed to making positive changes in the future. We really believe if you help a woman, you help the planet. Because women are, in addition to everything else, they're the ones that keep their kids alive. They're on the front lines, and I think that's a surprise to most people. That's Annie Griffiths one of the first female photographers at National Geographic. She started in 1978 and since then has photographed in nearly 150 countries. And she's found over time that one of her true loves is photographing women and their communities in developing countries. For years, uh, I had the privilege of, of sitting on the floors of, of women's homes and um, sharing meals with them and, and really learning uh, what their world was like. And I became increasingly distressed by the way especially poorer women, were portrayed in, in mainstream media. Which, Griffith says, was primarily as victims because of tragedy or their sexual vulnerability. And while those stories are important, if that's all people know, it makes them turn away and, and sort of pity these women. And I was with them all the time and knew that that was not an accurate portrayal of most women in the developing world. They are, in fact, the engines that drive their communities. They're funny. They're smart. They might not have an education, but boy, are they are they clever. They're resourceful. And, um, and they work together. So uh, as time went on, I I realized that those were the stories I wanted to tell to help people in the Western world realize these women have no interest in being pitied. Griffiths is the executive director of Ripple Effect Images, a collective of photographers and filmmakers, primarily from National Geographic, who document programs empowering women around the globe. Ripple is dedicated to covering the underreported issues and solutions that impact women and children in seven key areas food, water, health, education, energy, economic empowerment, and climate change. 70% of those who die in any climate disaster are women. It's not women and children, it's women. And that's because uh, when drought hits uh, or, or terrible flooding, often the men take off and head for urban areas to try to find work. Um, 
the women are left behind to try to keep the kids alive and the elderly alive. And uh, when they when they flee, when they have to go as well, they're they're traveling with their their families, you know. Uh, so they're simply carrying too big a load, often at their own, you know, at great risk to themselves. Ripple Effect Images identifies top aid groups that empower women and children and assigns world-class photographers to document their programs. And the resulting films and images are gifted to the aid groups, dramatically improving their fundraising. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be going to Tanzania and working with Maasai women who are putting solar panels on traditional huts and are installing clean cooking and efficient cooking in their, uh, in their little bomas. Griffith says that there's a 10 to 1 return on investment. And since its inception, Ripple has raised over $10 million for aid organizations around the world. Organizations like TIST in Kenya, which transforms landscapes by planting trees. There were uh, terrible erosion problems happening whenever the rainy season came because there were no trees to hold the soil. So they organized mostly women planting groups. And by working together, these women have planted millions of trees. They've completely changed the landscape where they live. And as women do, as soon as they started having that income, they built a school. They're moving on into little industries of their own, little shops and and businesses that can lift the whole community. And that's how Annie Griffiths got the name for her organization. That's why we're called Ripple Effect Images, because if you help women with one problem, they immediately are on to the next solution. You know, I personally believe that women in the developing world are the best investment we can make in our shared future because they'll pay it forward to their families and then their communities and their state and their nation and eventually the world. Another of Annie's favorite stories takes place in Peru. We worked in Peru with uh, Heifer International and also with Care Peru on programs that were helping women with agriculture. Because in so many parts of the world, women are, you know, the, the prime people growing the crops and raising the animals. And in the high Andes, uh, climate has really changed everything for them because things are warming. The snow caps that used to form are, are much smaller. There's a real concern about water. So these aid organizations came in and taught women the basics of inoculating a brand new pig or um, feeding their cows a mixed diet, which makes them stronger and healthier. They're basically arming them with the agricultural tools that will allow them to succeed even with the climate changing. Annie Griffiths clearly loves her job, but it's not always easy. The hardest part for me has been in situations where uh, we're where children are really at risk and um, and feeling like I should be tucking them into my camera bag and bringing them home, which is almost always impossible. Um, so a lot of times the best you can do is try to make some local arrangements to care for kids who you see at risk, which I've done in a number of countries, and then also make sure they feel special. You know, um, most of us in this world are not used to anyone really paying attention to us. 
And so if we can be, uh, if we can be just a little light that day that, that looks them in the eyes and touches them and makes them feel special, it helps. You can find out more about Ripple Effect Images online at abeautiful.world. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World. Now we turn to women of the future, that is, girls. What girls consume now is going to help shape who they become. Their media, their books, their videos. And there's two authors who wanted to take fairy tales and turn them on their head. We didn't just want to, to give children the, the usual fairy tales. That's Elena Favilli, who wrote Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls with co-author Francesca Cavallo. It's not a typical book of fairy tales. These stories are true. They're true stories about real women around the world who accomplished amazing things. The authors got their idea for the series after hearing Gina Davis speak about gender inequality in children's media. My institute has commissioned the largest body of research ever done on uh, gender in film and television covering a 20-year span, and the results were, were stunning. The worldview that we are reflecting for children is very unbalanced. In family film ratings, for every one female character, there are three male characters. Davis discovered there were far fewer female characters in children's media and that the females she did find were not very realistic. Often the female character's waist is so tiny that you have to wonder, could you fit a spinal column in there? And the most, uh, one of the most common occupations for female characters in G-rated movies was uh, royalty, which is a nice gig if you can get it. <laughs> Our research also showed uh, the percentage of female characters in crowd scenes and group scenes is 17%. 17% of crowd scenes? It's, I mean, you would have to go out of your way to leave out that many women, I would think. But, but I do have a theory about why that happens. I, I think Hollywood writers think that women don't gather. Um, <laughs> I mean, let, let's say it, it's a movie and there's a scene in a, in a village and, uh, oh my God, something's going on over there. Let's all go and see. And, and the women say, mm, I'm not the... <laughs> I'm not really interested in gathering. I have other other stuff to do. Um, when Favili and Cavallo heard these statistics, they were shocked. And it was striking because we both consider ourselves feminists and uh, we are both and we've always been very passionate about gender equality. And there we were listening to this amazing speech about how little uh, space there is for female characters in children's media. And we were at that conference presenting two projects for two animated series and both had a male protagonist. They decided to do something about it. They wrote Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, a children's book packed with 100 bedtime stories about the lives of 100 extraordinary women from the past and present, illustrated by 60 female artists from all over the world. Stories about Queen Elizabeth, Serena Williams, Eva Perone, and the first female African-American astronaut, Mae Jemison, just to name a few. We worked on um, kind of fixing 
some of the injustice of the uh, school curricula that never exposed us to uh, many of the incredible women who made history. When we uh, remember, when we think about uh, the books that we grew up with, about the great, the great people of history, well, those books might well have uh, been called um, the great men of history because we grew up with the idea that history was made by men. The stories include women from modern day history and from the ancient past. And while the authors love all the stories, Elena Favilli does have a favorite. There is one that I particularly love, which is this female pharaoh who lived long before Cleopatra, but her name was Hatshepsut. She was the first female pharaoh to rule over Egypt, and she was a very successful leader. But in any case, after her, her death, they tried to destroy her memory, and so her statues were smashed, and every living memory of her reign and of her, uh, of her life was basically destroyed because they everyone was scared that other women could then, based on her example, try to seek power. And here is the rebel girl's story of Hatshepsut. Long before Cleopatra, a woman ruled Egypt for 25 years. Her name was Hatshepsut, and she was the first woman to ever become pharaoh. At the time, the idea of a woman being pharaoh was so strange that Hatshepsut had to act as though she was a man in order to convince Egyptians that she was their legitimate leader. She proclaimed herself king and not queen and canceled the female suffix in her name. She wore men's clothes and sometimes even put on a false beard. Hatshepsut reigned longer and more successfully than any other pharaoh in all of Egyptian history. But apparently, that wasn't enough. Twenty years after she died, someone tried to erase her from history. Statues of her were smashed, and her name was removed from the records. Why? Because a female pharaoh freaked people out. What if her success encouraged other women to seek power? Thankfully, it's not so easy to erase the memory of someone immortalized in stone. Enough traces of her life and work remained for modern archaeologists to piece together her story. Hatshepsut's mummy, wrapped in linen and perfumed with resins, had been removed from her original grave and hidden, but it was found in the Valley of Kings a few years ago. We always start from when they're very young because we want to make these characters very attainable and, and relatable uh, for, for children so that they can sort of become their, their friends. They can see them as someone uh, that one day they can also become. And, and so they're not just these superheroes who made history because they had superpowers. They're just, you know, very normal human beings with normal life experiences and life struggles. Elena says this is symbolic of the stories they try to capture, the women they write about, women who might be lost to history or overlooked in faraway countries. 
Francesca Cavallo's favorite story is one of more modern-day women. That's the story of the Black Mambas. And this is the story of this group of rangers that has basically revolutionized the way they patrol the national parks in South Africa. The Black Mambas are 26 women in South Africa who patrol nature preserves and protect endangered animals by working together and collaborating, a concept Francesca Cavallo says shatters the typical female stereotype in most stories. Usually in traditional fairy tales, uh, women are uh, rivals and uh, they can stand each other, they try to kill each other. Instead, in our books, uh, women collaborate uh, and do all sorts of incredible things. And uh, so that is one of the aspects that I'm most proud of, of the stories that we feature in our books. And here is the story of the Black Mambas. One day, a park warden named Craig put together an all-female team of rangers to stop poachers in the South African savannah. He called them the Black Mambas. He recruited high school graduates from the communities surrounding the wildlife park. It's important to protect the rhinos, he explained, so future generations will see them for real and not just on posters. He gave the women uniforms and set up a training program. The black mambas learned how to survive the savanna, how to spot animal traps, and what to do when they encountered lions, elephants, buffaloes, and hyenas. They learned how to track poachers and patrol the park's perimeter fence, armed only with pepper spray and handcuffs. This war on poaching is bigger than guns and bullets, declared Demuto Magakine, one of the mambas. We are the eyes and ears of the reserves. We're doing things differently. The black mambas took great pride in their work. They talked to people about the importance of rhinos in their communities and how lucky they were to live in one of the most biodiverse countries in the world. They gave presentations in schools and taught children that it was wrong to cooperate with poachers and lay traps in the park. They became heroes. To be a black mamba means to be a tough and strong lady, said Numutu, one who can work in the bushes without fear. It took only a year of black mamba patrols for the snaring to disappear almost completely and the rhino killings to stop entirely. According to Elena Favilli, there's one thing that all the women in their book have in common. Perseverance was something that all these women had to nurture and stick to because it wasn't easy for any of them. No matter how how smart they were or how passionate they were, nothing came easy. They they had to struggle to fight, to, to see their talent recognized, to see their discoveries sometimes recognized. Favili says they wanted to give children inspiring stories that could help them create bigger dreams for themselves. And then, yeah, we always start from when they're very young because we want to make these characters very attainable and, and relatable uh, for, for children so that they can sort of become their, their friends. They can see them as someone uh, that one day they can also become. And, and so they're not just these superheroes who made history because they had superpowers. They're just, you know, very normal human beings with normal life experiences and life struggles. And, and I think this makes them more, this makes them 
closer to the to, to the readers and and I think this is why so many times children come to us uh, telling us that they or parents in most cases come to us telling us that their children when they read the book then they say one day I'm gonna be in this book and one day I'll, I'll be one of these rebel girls featured here this uh, this sense of possibility for, for them to to be to become uh, a rebel girl too. One of the goals for us has been to pr portray these women as uh, relatable because we want the book to become a lens through which uh, our readers can see more clearly the rebel girls in their life. They can see that rebel girls are their mothers, their schoolmates, their friends, and they can learn to celebrate their talent, uh, the talent of the rebel girls in their life. So to end the book with a space where uh, children and why not or even grown-ups can include themselves in this gallery of portrait is a way to celebrate exactly that exactly the fact that rebel girls are everywhere and that uh, we need to stop overseeing their talent and we need to start celebrating them and uh, giving them the space uh, to uh, to change the world uh, as they as they can Elena Favilli and Francesca Cavallo have done what Gina Davis wanted them to do, to add women. The invisibility and disempowerment of women cry out for change. What we need across all the sectors of society is to add women. We need more women on screen and behind the cameras in the realms of academia, business, law, the military, add women to the ranks of corporate boards, uh, policymakers, presidents, and prime ministers, add women, encourage women, include women, vote for women, hire women. Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls is launching a podcast this March featuring a new rebel girl every week. You can learn more at abeautiful.world. My idea of a beautiful world and of a civilized world is, um, is a simple idea. It's uh, the idea of a world where, where, where women have the same opportunities as men and where women are free to choose for, for, for themselves, for their, their body, for their career, uh, for their future. That's Elena Favilli and Francesca Cavallo talking about their series, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. Special thanks to them and Deborah L. Hughes, Annie Griffiths, Gina Davis, and Jane Goodall for being on the program today. Our show is engineered by Johnny Vince Evans and Veronica Rodriguez. I'd like to personally dedicate this program to my mom, Judy McElhatton, who passed away December 4th. She was my original rebel girl, and I carry her fierceness and love forward. I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World from American Public Media. Brought to you with help from the Polad Family Foundation. Foundation.